No Password Required is a presentation of Cyber Florida, located on the Tampa campus of the University of South Florida. Hello, I'm Bill McQueen. Today we have part two of our special edition of No Password Required, recorded at Florida Cyber Conference 2019 in Tampa. In part one, our expert panel shared secrets on how to promote cybersecurity in the C-suite. In today's episode, the panel offers solutions to the growing need for trained cybersecurity professionals. Here is moderator Mark Clancy, Chief Information Officer for Sprint. So I was talking to one of Andy's peers a couple years ago, who's a CISO of a large Wall Street financial firm, and he said one thing that struck me that was interesting, which is he spends 60% of his time talking to his company's clients. Why? Because they had tremendous experience in cybersecurity and all the clients wanted to hear it, and they actually viewed it as a business value add when they're working investment banking deal, we can advise on X, Y, and Z. So my question for the panel in that spirit is what can the big, big guys do to help the little guys. Somebody here might have helped me with this question, but maybe I'll start with Terry, just randomly. This is, <laughs> this is one of my aha moments uh, uh, about a year and a half ago when, when we did a marketing study that basically said that businesses aren't gonna do anything unless they've had an event or they have a contract at risk or they're enabled, enabled. So, I started thinking through it, and honestly, small and mid-sized businesses, and, I, and my, the way I define that is they don't have CIOs, they don't have CISOs, which actually can get pretty big, by the way. I, I have worked with a billion-dollar global company that had an IT director, and that was it, okay? What they need to be enabled means the big guys have to help, so the banks, and the insurance companies have to provide them some kind of level of cyber risk step off. And I can go into specifics with anybody of what that could mean. And for the defense industrial base, um, it has to be the primes. So the prime contractors in the defense industrial base have to help. I tried to set this up at my last company, but they didn't like the idea, but I thought since we had a world-class SOC, you know, that we could provide services to our small and mid-sized business partners. Um, and so I think it's those kinds of initiatives, and I think there should be incentives, right, mm -hmm. to get them there. But I would like, I would pay a little security fee on my small business bank loan if it came with, you know, protection for me um, or a stepping off point. So I think the big guys have to step in. Completely agree, and I think there's multiple benefits. Honestly, it can be a competitive advantage, uh, and we certainly look at that from that perspective uh, in talking to our clients. So we have 8,000 financial advisors. They have clients with insecurities, uh, pardon the pun, you know, around the topic of cyber. Uh, great. Well, you know, let's show that that trust relationship between that advisor and that client is even stronger because they can reach back to us and we can talk to that client. We we can come and do a client presentation. Um, and uh, so often that bleeds into questions and comments and follow-ups around small and medium-sized businesses as well. Oftentimes the client uh, is also, you know, a, a business owner. Um, but I agree beyond that. Um, 
between physical supply chain and information supply chain, we're all probably only, I don't know, three or four degrees of separation from everybody else. So the attitude, as Mark well knows, because he was one of the pioneers of this, of information sharing and financial services uh, is now fundamental to every person to ha have my job. We are all part of the same ecosystem uh, and let's share what we know um, and frankly, bruises, bumps, scar tissue that large firms, you know, have learned from, let's share that with smaller firms. Uh, because if there's a weak community bank out there, if, if there's a credit union that doesn't have a CISO yet, uh, let's not wait for them to have a problem that might frankly affect, you know, everyone else. Uh, let's, you know, lift them up. Let's yeah. share. And so that's very powerful in financial services. I think we could be doing more of that. Now, maybe what I'd say to the audience is don't wait for someone to show up and offer. Ask, uh, right? Ask. I think the answer you're going to get is absolutely. You know, what would you like to know? What could we share? What resources do we have? Um, uh, because they may not have thought of you as a as uh, someone who could benefit, but I would guess they'd be willing to share. So I like the idea of being forward leaning. So I do think that if your company is forward leaning and is saying, "Hey, how can we partner in a way that shows that we want to mitigate risk?" Uh, to a point that we're a stronger business partner, right? The same way that we looked at like five years ago where board of directors of the Fortune 500 companies were looking more closely at CISO resumes before a company hired them. So the board of directors wanted to approve their resumes so they knew that the company had, um, had someone that actually was a thought leader. He or she is a thought leader to really take their company forward. So with your company today, if you're in the industry today, um, being forward-leaning and saying, what can I do? One thing I would take a look at is for the de defense side, and I know there's, it's on the, also in the other sectors, um, for the federal acquisition regulations, there's the defense federal acquisition regulations, the DFARS. Right now there's a mandatory kind of minimum standard that you have to demonstrate your compliance with. So you have to have a compliance program in place that demonstrates that, 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 that you meet that standard with respect to cybersecurity. That can be daunting, right? Dealing with the federal government is daunting in and of itself, and then adding a whole layer of demonstration of compliance with cybersecurity regulations is almost a whole new le level, right? So there are programs out there now where there's a um, Department of Defense a mentor protege programs where someone will bring you in and kind of help sponsor you to get into that cybersecurity compliance, check that box, and then you are now, you can then um, partner, right, four degrees of separation. You want to be able to know who you're partnering with, that they're secure, that they understand the risks that they're subjecting not only their own company to, but everyone else that they're doing business with. You don't want to be the weakest link. So I think there's a lot of opportunities out there to say, hey, I want to, I want to, get, I want to continue to do a good job. I want my company to, to expand and succeed and keep our nation safe. Look to others that are already have those successes and ask them to really bring the, bring you along with them Exactly with what you with what you just heard from my colleagues because we're all here together Great and just to echo your comment about the board's involvement So when I came over to sprint my last interview was with a board member who just happened to be a former chairman of the Joint Chief Admiral Mullen uh, <laughs> No pressure um, Yeah, there you go. So you know what I was dealing with um, it, but it, and I think the executive level has realized that this is a business risk issue. What they haven't realized is how to fully translate what that risk is to the business they run. Right? So maybe we can talk about that sort of theme in education of how do you sort of make, how do you cyberize the CEO? Right? How do you get them to understand the cyber exposure in the context of the way they think they run their business? Because I can tell you for me, it's the P&L, not the red, yellow, green chart. 
So, so one of the things we do is walk through with them what we call is a cyber risk profile. But it's basically, you know, what is the, the we want to protect the revenue and the reputation of your business, right? That, that resonates with them. And so we want to look at the linkages and dependencies that you have to the digital world that impact most your revenue and your reputation. And then you prioritize those, right? So if you sell retail via your website, then you know if your website were down for 48 hours, that that would have a big impact <laughs> to your both your reputation, right? Because then everybody knows that your website's down, and to your revenue because you're not selling anything. And so by mapping those risks to your revenue and reputation, then they go, and, and by the way, then you can try to quantify that. And there's some companies that do that, like Risk Lens and others, where they can say, okay, if your website's down for 48 hours, it's gonna cost you $1.2 million, right? And I, that could potentially kill me if I'm a smaller business kind of thing. So mapping it to business impact is, is the wake-up call for them, I, I have found. I'll, I'll just add, uh, rather than they're repeating a different version of that, because I think that's extremely insightful. Um, back to a theme I said before, though, I, I, I at lunch saw a couple uh, French officers, no doubt, probably from CENTCOM or SOCOM out here, and they were eating lunch, and, and um, you know that maybe stereotypical American thing that well, if they don't understand me, I'll yell louder, uh, or I could learn how to speak French, right? Or like, which would be the better, you know, tactic? So, what I would do is sort of check myself and think, how well educated am I to talk to that business executive in his or her language versus how am I going to educate them in my language, right? Wh which will be more effective? You better have contextual situational awareness about that business executive's job, about their goals, about their P&L, about their business, about their business goals, or organizational goals, right? Uh, expanded beyond business, or you're not gonna be able to, to speak to them. You're gonna have extremely difficult time in that educational process. So, you know, look inward, look to yourself, uh, and think about how could I be better prepared to have that conversation? So I guess I'll take a quick twist on that, on cyberizing the, C the CEO to cyberizing the principal. So the National Security Agency has a mission, a national mission that we really, that we really want to support, and that is just increasing cyber awareness across all 50 states, and doing that from the kindergarten level all the way up. So how do you actually get children interested at a very early age? They have to be exposed to it. Well, they're exposed to the, you know, an iPad at a year, some of these kids at 12 months can manipulate an iPad, but, but learning then how to, what goes beyond, what goes inside that iPad, and how does it actually come together. So what, what we've been doing uh, within the Department of Defense, with the National Security Agency, is we've been working with a lot of the states. We're now very active in Gen Cyber, as well as the Centers for Academic Excellence, in trying to get um, schools adopting cybersecurity curriculum at the lower grade levels, as well as the higher grade levels, up through the college. You're listening to No Password Required. This is Bill McQueen. We now return to our special edition of No Password Required, 
recorded at the Florida Cyber Conference 2019 in Tampa. So cyberizing the principle, and I think that's where I think uh, what you heard from, from Andy with respect to understanding the lingo, explaining to them in very real terms what in, is it in it for their school, for their county, and for their state, and how can they actually make a difference. So in 2018, California lost $214 million from cybercrime. So those principles in the state of California are recognizing, you know, it goes to the very pocketbooks or the purses or the wallets of the parents of my students. And how can we kind of invest in the, um, invest in changing or adding maybe to a mathematics component, a mathemat part of the mathematics curriculum, adding to it some cybersecurity understanding, under you know, technology, adding maybe to the science piece, increasing part of the technology in a science class. How do we actually um, increase that? Just the awareness of cybersecurity and then start developing a basic cyber hygiene at a really, really early level so that we don't, as a country, have one state losing that much money in one year to cybercrime. I mean, we're all paying the price, right? So this, this, is, this is a marathon, right, um, in terms of our country getting ourselves together. So I appreciate uh, what my colleague said with respect to understanding the business risk, then also understanding, talking the lingo. And I think that's where we pull in the educational piece at a very early age across all 50 states. And I wanted to let you know, I was looking at my notes, and I did the math wrong. So I said it was the Constitution was signed in 1789. That was 230 years ago, not 300 years ago. Oh, I know there's mathematicians in this group. We didn't so call you on it. It's okay. <laughs> as long as you have your Windows 2003 out of the environment, it's all good. Um, so we talked about this throughout the day, that cybersecurity is a team sport. And so in that spirit, what can we do in the public-private partnership? And, and maybe in that specifically, what's sort of the interest of government in helping the private sector secure its network? And maybe we'll start with you, Denise reverse the order up, you know, keep it going. So what can the government do to share um, to public-private partnership? So if you think about it, the United States, as I was saying, like with your, your local MVA where you'd go and get your driver's license, it may have been a standalone system at one point, but now everything is connected. So here you have the United States government interconnected with everybody with respect to cloud shared, uh, cloud, uh, cloud services, shared services, technologies, all the different components. We can't anymore just make everything ourselves, right? Which you used to call the old, the old GOTS model, the government, um, the government created it from scratch. So we recognize as, the, as there's a business risk, like Terry was saying, there's a business risk to the government if we don't think of it more holistically. And I think that's what you heard from General Lacassoni this morning, and you heard from Ms. Ann Neuberger talk about the public-private partnership. So what are we doing in that regard? We're recognized that we have to share more information at the, um, on the cyber intelligence information, but we also have to share lessons learned of what we're doing. We also have to recognize that our employees, our greatest assets, our talent, have to be able to transition between different sectors, have to be able to transition between academia, government, um, and industry, um, and just to kind of keep learning and keep upskilling and become the better experts. So I think it's recognizing that where it can't just be like, oh, this is, this is the world that I'm in. No, actually, this is the world that we're in. You know, we are all in this together. And I think that's a new awakening for our country, is really recognizing that this is a for United States to maintain its innovation edge, the, the edge that we have, we all have to come together in a way that's dramatically different. So I'm going to sound a little bit negative. Um, <laughs> 
I've been hearing about private-public partnerships for the past 20 years, and I haven't seen dramatic progress. I have seen small initiatives that are pointed to. I am ever hopeful about what Ann Newberger discussed this morning about um, the NSA Cybersecurity Directorate. But I, having been in government, industry, and academia, I actually believe that you need a nonprofit interlocutor between government and industry to scale partnership. I, ha I was a part of it at Carnegie Mellon. I think that UARCs and FFRDCs, and I prefer that they're aligned with a university because I think a university keeps the ideas and the research, right, and the engagement and the conversation fresh. Um, and so when I hear something like they want to start a new uh, nonprofit to do uh, the cybersecurity maturity model certification, I'm kind of like, why not? establish a UARC with a university that you're already working with, or why not use one of the ones that already exists? And how about scaling partnership in all the areas we've discussed, right? In, in research, in uh, information sharing, in training and education, curriculum sharing, and I want to see it scale for once. I'll be more optimistic. Uh, <laughs> Only to the extent that, as I alluded to before, that there is so much available. If there's an opportunity to me to, to extend the public-private uh, partnership or to mine that more, simply making it more clear what's available, right? Versus, uh, I have a, I have a lot of uh, you know colleagues, CISOs, who are sort of always grumbling about you know we're not getting you know classified threat intelligence you know and that, and that's the only you know that's the only definition of of effective public partnerships we're like stop wishing for that cuz you're never going to get it right but look meanwhile look at the best practices look at the tools um, you know look at the educational uh, materials that are available um, you know look at initiatives that come through NIST that come through SCI that that come through DARPA L look at the benefit that's flowing for it to me that's all part of the public private partnership versus no one called me and shared, you know, timely threat intelligence. Uh, you know, I just don't, I don't think that's the best way for uh, the government, you know, to help us, right? Um, and I think the government has really improved in creating opportunities for sharing, right? So much more collaborative, not always we have the answer and, and let us tell you what the answer is, but, you know, create opportunities uh, for partners to share of which you know, federal agencies play a part in the conversation, but it's not the only voice. I think that's tremendous. So I just wanted to tap on to the conversation of comment on nonprofit interlocutor. That I think there's definitely something to say for that because we keep hearing about zero trust and you know, trust but verify with the old Ronald Reagan model. I think everyone does want to deal with an honest broker, and I, that's, I think you know, that could be the missing link in terms of some regard, that who is the honest broker and who can we actually come together on so that partnership truly is a solidified partnership and we know who we're actually in the sandbox with. So I, I, I think there's something to say for that, Terry. So, <laughs> big fan. So, so on that theme, let me pull two things. So I had a conversation with John Falker at Homeland Security. It's running CISA. Great American. Great American. <laughs> Middle, you know, ask them questions, hard questions later. But to me, one of the challenges we have is creating the muscle memory for sharing. We do it transactionally. And, and I gave this talk a few years ago at the FSISAC. 
Generation one sharing network was at the bar. Generation two is email. Generation three is some structured data. I'm running a 5G network. I want fifth generation sharing, right? So how do we create from the leadership level down that institutional muscle memory to do this? And, and the reason I ask is every company I've worked for, when I got there, sharing of information was prohibited by the security policy. So um, I was actually responsible for um, the DIB pilot, um, shoot, I'm trying to think, 2014, when we were trying to scale the sharing across the defense industrial base. Yeah. Of, and I testified about complaining when it got shut right, down. Right, uh. right. <laughs> and the lessons learned that came out of that was that because we couldn't do it at an unclassified level at speed, and because we didn't have that nonprofit interlocutor that where we would have continuous trust, and that the 33,000 companies from across the defense industrial base could participate, right, then the impact was really limited. So, Unfortunately, we learned these lessons a long time ago, but we still haven't built that model. I, at the time, was recommending CMU CERT, the first CERT in the world, to be that, um, but we need something like that because then they are deep in the science, deep in the knowledge, keep the knowledge base together, and, ev and everyone can interact with them at speed continuously. I don't have much to add to that. Are there any Raymond James attorneys in the room? <laughs> okay, so uh, yeah, uh, look, I own the security policy. We share back. In fact, we measure how much you know we share back because you're right, it's absolutely impossible. I sort of alluded to in my previous comment, uh, sitting and waiting for the one-way information flow. Oh, I'm not sharing anything back. It doesn't work, right? So right. Um, it was mentioned I was a Marine. I, I, I can barely say interlocutor versus you know, get into the details. <laughs> Is that of the thing it, where like the right? water level comes up in the Ex river? Yes, oh. but I do know uh, what can I do in my organization? Promote sharing, right? Uh, every partnership should be a bilateral, uh, you know, opportunity for value, and that includes whether we're, you know, we we've shared information with government agencies that wow, that's really interesting. Thanks but, for sharing. But so. wouldn't we like to know that it's all coming together somewhere? For sure. Like that's my stretch yeah. goal. Like right. that from government, industry, and academia, at least in the U.S., that it's all coming together somewhere. Well, I think it's all coming together in, in environments like this because they're there was a void, right? We didn't actually have an environment where we could actually come together. So I think it really, I think it's powerful, honestly, that all 50 states are saying, what can we do? How can we share? And how can we come together to start thinking creatively in a way that doesn't diminish your competitive advantage? If you are a company, how do you protect intellectual property, but also maintaining and ensuring of your defenses? So I think there's a lot of value in meeting with your colleagues across the different sectors, but in a way that you can think strategically and, uh, just, you know, and just think big picture. And I think it's, you have to juxtaposition that with the workforce, that's the talent that's coming into the workplace today. A lot of them, you know, are, were born after 9-11 or have no, no recollection of that. They're born for 9-11 and they don't have that muscle memory necessarily. And so it's incumbent upon, I think, the leaders and the veterans in the field to use that muscle memory and to think strategically and start coming together as a unit. You're listening to No Password Required.
This is Bill McQueen. We now return to our special edition of No Password Required, recorded at the Florida Cyber Conference 2019 in Tampa. Well, I, I think, uh, Mark, you're absolutely right. The, <clears throat> the establishment of muscle memory is the, is the key. And to Terry's point about having some sense that there is indeed a place where that comes together, yeah, we aren't there yet. Um, but I think we are on the path to getting there. I'm not sure the right path, but I think probably you, you may have all heard it at Ann's talk earlier today, some of the things they're trying to do in conjunction with what we're trying to do. But one of the big things in that challenge is classified versus unclassified. Um, and I think we as a government have to get out of this mode of it has to be classified to be worth anything because there's a ton of stuff out there, and, and I see it every day, yeah. that isn't classified, that's coming from the commercial sector, and that's just as relevant and important, and you, by the way, you can use it right now, uh, as there is coming from the classified side. Right, well, and back, Sorry, and back, back to fundamentals, right? If, if every network in the United States was leveraging what's available unclassified, right. we'd be, be golden, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> Rather than saying, well, where's the classified stuff? Like, well, okay, how about you work with what you have right now uh, and you'd be so much better off. Okay, final question, two-parter for each of you. What's the most interesting, amazing thing you heard today and what's the thing you're most surprised you didn't hear today at the conference? With, and maybe in the last session, because there's one session ever else, but we'll start with you, Terry. Um, frankly, in Newberger's um, conversation, as someone who's been in the national security arena for 40 years, um, <laughs> I have not heard as much information in our space, initiatives that are on point um, ever, ever before from, from that agency that I, that I have worked with forever. Uh, so I was really impressed when I first heard that they were standing it up, I was kind of like, oh, so information assurance directorate back to the future kind of thing. Um, but I think they are taking a very updated approach. I will say that I want it, I want them to partner with university UARCs and FFRDCs so that they can scale all the amazing work that they're doing. But I am very excited about the potential of that. Right. What did you not hear that you expected to hear today? What, what were we silent on? What did we miss? Um, I think we're always missing um, very focused solutions that we can act on together now. You know, I want sign up here, <laughs> do this, play in this. Um, because as someone who's been listening to all of this for a very long time, I worry when the conversation is circular. Okay. Andy? I was gonna say Ann's comments, but I'll <laughs> pick another one. Um, I, uh, for the positive Florida Attorney General talking so specifically about cybercrime, fraud, uh, the impact on the elderly in our state, and, and not accepting you know, being number one in the wrong category. Uh, so she fired me up, that, uh, and immediately, you know, how can we help uh, in that in our home state here in Florida? Um, again, maybe uh, because I'm a glass half full, that Ann didn't uh, deflect questions, didn't say I can't say. Did, you know, so that, that I expected 
from the previously known as no such agency, uh, you know, to be so open, uh, to mention tools that are being used. Uh, the new open source, uh, you know, initiative for, for uh, um, reverse engineering malware. So, so um, what I uh, didn't hear, you know, was an attitude that was more common in the past. That's great, Diane. I think the most amazing thing is that I'm here, which is a, yeah. a great thing for me, and because uh, I'm so passionate about this area, and I just I really really enjoy meeting people around the country. Um, my job I go around the world for a lot of uh, different opportunities around the country, and I really really enjoyed coming here. So that was amazing for me. But talking about the speakers, I really I really enjoyed the part of General Nakasone's presentation this morning about the data science and the future of AI. And then that dovetails into what I didn't hear. I thought later on the day we might hear more about it. But with respect to the National Security Agency, always trying to stay on the cutting edge in terms of where things are going. What I didn't hear today was about, you know, with respect to AI, the data science piece, the data sets, data sets really are going to make a difference on how AI is used in the future. Um, and so I think that'll probably be next year's uh, symposium, because I think that's like, that's where we're going to in terms of you know, how that can actually help, um, you know, bigger picture in terms of bigger data sets and how can you, you know, dissect all of that. And the only thing I didn't also hear about was the cyber labs and our opportunity to actually do more together on shared cyber labs because we can't all have our own cyber lab, right? And so I think, oh, I think that that's I think that would be a significant area for us to come together and learn. It could be sector specific cyber labs, and if it will go there, and that may be where the you know the nonprofit interlocutor concept is going because I do think there probably is a place for that. We need that. So, uh, but overall, just fantastic meeting so many of you. So thank you for your time. Thank you. So one small plug for Cyber Florida. So Cyber Florida does have a range environment that it uses with the state university system. And we're talking about how do we make that more accessible to the wider swath of the community. So hopefully that's a coming attraction. I didn't commit Cyber Florida to it, but Shree, where are you? Get it done. Um, <laughs> and so uh, thanks all of you for attending. I would like to thank our panelists. Give them a round of applause. This has been a special two-part edition of No Password Required, recorded on location at Florida Cyber Conference 2019 in Tampa. I'm Bill McQueen. Thank you for listening. No Password Required is a presentation of Cyber Florida, located on the Tampa campus of the University of South Florida. To hear other episodes of No Password Required, visit cyberflorida.org backslash podcast.